The anticipation continues to build for the Canucks and the NHL offseason. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. We've got the A-Dog, Andy Cole, producing the show in the studio today as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Still very much in the uh, the calm before the storm mode here, Drancer, right? You know, every, the NHL world is going to convene in Montreal next week. Will that be the uh, <laughs> the fireworks factory that we've all been waiting for the Canucks to finally get to? It remains to be seen. But right now, we're just we're, we're letting the anticipation build, I would say. Well, it's Friday. So Friday, the buyout window opens, right? And then July 2nd, you've got the deadline for club teams to file for club elected arbitration. Now, those might seem like the the non-sexy deadlines, and they are. It's not It's not NHL draft day. It's not the free agent frenzy. But they're deadlines. But they're, they're something. They're, they're dates moments. on the calendar. They're leverage points. They're, they're, as those sort of begin to pile up, the gears of the NHL silly season begin to, you know, click. Um, and we'll we'll sort of rush headlong into a sprint of transactional news for two weeks, and then it'll quickly subside as we yes. get into what people call the dog days. And so it's going to be really interesting. I, I mean, there's a real chance that this team is fundamentally transformed. This Vancouver Canucks team is fundamentally transformed over the next two weeks. It has to be. You know, I, I mean... One way or another, it has to be. Even to keep this group together requires this club to do some work to to make sure that that's feasible. So, no matter what direction this Canucks offseason takes, it's going to be a fascinating next two weeks. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Get your thoughts and questions in about the impending Canucks offseason, 650-650. And I, I wanted to, kind of as the theme of the episode today, Drancer, we spend so much time at this time of year looking outside of the organization, right? Outside of the Canucks organization itself in a lot of ways. And whether that's, you know, hey, which UFAs can they go target? Can they offer sheet this player? Who are some interesting trade targets uh, out there that they could acquire? Or even if we're talking about JT Miller, right, which teams might be interesting trading partners? Which prospects do you like uh, from other teams that you could target in a blockbuster deal like that? But I wanted to kind of put pause on that just for a second. And hey, look, maybe we'll find some time to do some JT Miller speculation later in the show. We got to get our quota in, of course. I wanted to just kind of put pause on that outward-looking side of the offseason and take a second to look inward a little bit. And not, you know, at, at you and me uh, ourselves. I, I don't think anyone wants to hear that. I don't have the appetite for that. I kind of I mean, <laughs> Marginal interest listen, in that. That's, that's, uh, that's what my therapist gets paid for, eh, dog? All right? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Marginal interest in that. I mean, that. not a lot of interest, but a little bit of interest. <laughs> um, if you went on so for 30 listen, seconds, listen. I'd be good. 60 would be too we're much. Not, we're not going to do any introspection here, all right? We'll, we'll save that. We'll save that for another time. You, but, you can't have takes like we have takes if you do introspection. <laughs> This Come is true. on. This is Come true. on. <laughs> it's true. The best method is you you have a take, and then you just wipe your memory clean yeah, of the take. Walk Forget away. about it. Walk, walk away. away. Yeah. Just let it be. Let's which set I, it out which, there. Which I highly recommend, by the way. I highly recommend. Like, my favorite thing to do is to launch a Whopper food take, because everyone always gets mad about food takes, right? They're the, like, they're the best. I can't even eat pizza without pineapple on it, and then log off. 
for yeah. like three hours and just come back and there's 400 angry replies. You saying that makes me kind of angry. Just mute the, <laughs> so, mute the conversation and walk away. That's the best best course of action. It's so oh, Don't even mute. Log literally off and then come back and find yourself wading through a pool of just out- outrageousness. But what yeah. I wanted to talk about today was looking at a couple of different aspects internal to the Vancouver Canucks, right? With the the assets and the players and all of it that they have currently in hand. Inventory. And how yeah, exactly. The inventory, inventory on hand and how that's going to shape their offseason and the direction of the team. And there's a couple of different directions we'll go with this, but we'll start kind of uh, piggybacking on an article that you have up in the athletic today looking at not free agent targets from outside the organization, but how they should approach the list of free agents, both UFAs and RFAs, that they currently have in-house, right? And it's an interesting list because... You know, look, we've talked about Brock Besser to death, so we're kind of we'll kind of exclude him from this he conversation. He was also excluded from the article. Yeah, for that <laughs> reason. Bo Horvat and JT Miller, of course, are not actually as much as we have spent a lot of time talking about their contractual situation and, and what an extension might look like. They're not actually pending UFAs. They've still got another year, year left yeah. left under contract. So the list of who they're is free agents. this right now in two ye- in two weeks is going to be a free agent. It's kind of an interesting one from a Canucks perspective. And I wanted to start the conversation with a name that's at the top of your article and a player who had a really, really interesting season with the Canucks and somebody that I think if you'd asked people in, you know, December, is this guy going to yeah. be back with the team? Much you would have ma- had much maligned, much maligned. You would have had almost a unanimous no, but all of a sudden you look at Alex chase on and you think that's a pretty interesting pending UFA from a Canucks perspective. Uh, absolutely. It is. I mean, look, when you're looking at, your bottom six, right? There's a profile of a player that I think is essential for any winning team to have. And the profile includes the following things. You need to be an ace or at least very useful in one phase of special teams. Whether you're a penalty killer or you're a power play specialist, you need to be able to contribute into one phase of special teams if you're going to play on a good team's bottom six. You need to be, and this is the first order of business, capable of moving up the lineup in the event of injuries capably. And the third thing is you need to be legitimately playable, right? Yeah, there's nights as a fourth liner in the NHL where you're going to be at four or five minutes. Like, that happens across the league. But you need to be able to play 12 safely on a regular basis without hurting the team in any way, without without causing the coach and the fans' blood pressure to spike every time you're out there. Alex Chason fits that profile to a T. He is a legitimate ace at the net front. He scored 10 power play goals this season. Ridiculous. He is a guy who at 5-on-5 five five has actually a positive offensive impact and a relatively neutral. Like, it's slightly on the wrong side of the ledger, but overall he's got a neutral 5-on-5 five five impact. And we saw that he can move up the lineup credibly. with In the minutes that Chase on played with both Bo Horvat and JT Miller, the club controlled better than 52% of expected goals. I mean, that's really good. That's better than Miller and Horvat did on the season as a whole. I don't know that Chason had as much chemistry with Elias Pettersson, but, you know, at, at the very least, we saw him play really well, and, and he played, you know, something like 60 minutes. Not a ton, but 60 minutes with JT Miller last season. And in those minutes, the Canucks controlled 55% of, uh, of shot attempts and outscored their opponents 12-6. Well, there you go. Chason's the type of player who, when injuries crop up, you're not plussed about him playing up the lineup. You might get a dirty goal or two. You know he's not going to hurt you defensively. He's going to play safe and reliable minutes. He's been around. He's won cups. 
He's seen top players work. He matches that work ethic. He never seems to get a contract early on in the offseason. I was going to say, there's something to be said for a guy who always has to earn his way onto an NHL team and then does so and goes out and does it, right? Even though he's coming in on a tryout every training camp, it seems like. Absolutely. And so, you know, Chase on for me is a really interesting one. Like, I think, you know, and I run, I ran him through Dom LeCision's game score value added model. There we go. And, you know, that model values him at something like a $3 million contributor. Well, he's not going to get close to that. So this is a layup to get surplus value. And yet, I think there are significant fit concerns, right? If the Canucks want to be faster, Chase on doesn't help you there. If the Canucks want to have Kuzmenko and Pod Colson get reps at the net front five on four, which is exactly, excuse me, exactly what they should do, you know, then chase on clogs that lane a bit, particularly when this team also has Tanner Pearson, right? Tanner Pearson's a fixture at the net front on the second unit. Well, at some point you've got to carve out minutes for Kuzmenko and Pod Colson to do the job because over the course of the next five years, you know, who are you going to want playing net front on the power play it's it, unfortunately it's not chase on it's not pearson it's going to be pod colson eventually if he hits like if pod Colson's going to be a 25 goal scorer in this league he's going to need to be a master of tips a master of the down low work uh at on on the at on the power play at five on four and i think we've seen glimpses of what he can do as for kuzmenko you know that's that's why he signed him like, you signed him to play on the power play, and, and I don't think you're going to want him on the half wall considering how good he is at playmaking from down low. Like, that's his skill set. You know, what you're really adding is a high-end playmaker who excels down low in the zone, threading passes to teammates. Like, that's where his spot should be. So it's a really interesting dynamic here where the Canucks have to weigh, you know, the fact that they've got high-caliber person, really useful player, but does he fit what they need from a development and from a team stylistic perspective for this season? I think the thing that the real eye-opening moment for me with Alex Chase on, and it's not a moment, but the the stretch, and you referenced it when he was playing with JT Miller, right? And it wasn't just, it wasn't treading water. Like that line was having success. That duo was having success. Yeah. And that bonus to have a fourth liner who's going to be available on a very, very reasonable number, right? But who has that ability to credibly fill in? You, you don't want to. You don't want to be your first choice. But we always talk about look the trend in the NHL around to, to finding those complementary players in the top six at extreme bargain rates. Right. That that's something that smart teams go out of their way to try to do. Hey, we've got to, to use the Leafs example. You know, we've got Matthews and Marner. Can we get Michael Bunting on the cheap to complement them and still give us really good production? Now, Chason's not going to be like that. He's not eligible for Rookie of the Year either, but it's that <laughs> although, kind of... Although he's the same age. <laughs> yeah. It's that kind of framework, right? Hey, we've got a couple of really good high-end players. Can we find the third complementary guy on a line who can still give us really solid production at a cheap price? And he showed that he can be at least something like that. I think he can be a fill-in, but I don't think Chase On's a heavy press in your top nine. You don't want him, you don't want him penciled in no. on opening night, but when the need arises, you can, can put him up. He can do the job, yeah. And, and so there's a lot of utility there, in my view. And, you know, I think Chase On on, a, on, a one, on an affordable one-year deal would make a ton of sense for this team. You know, if you're bringing in a right-handed fourth-line center or returning Yuho Lamico or Brad Richardson. I mean, if you're going... Say Chase on Richardson or Lamico and Highmore as your fourth line. That's right to left, by the way. Um, I don't think you're hosed there, and yet 
I do think we need to note, right, that there's still a big gap between that and Obey Kubel, Nico Stern, 100%. and Andrew Cogliano. Well, and this text comes in, um, chase on in the minors or as a call-up is fine, chase on on the everyday 23-man roster. No, we just saw Colorado win the cup with speed and skill. Chasen is neither of those. I mean, he he has skill as a net well, front presence, sure, obviously. Sure, but we also saw the Tampa Bay Lightning win two cups in a row and then make it to the cup final with Patrick Maroon and Corey Perry and, and Mark Edward Belmar on their fourth line. So there's different ways to win in this league. I, I, you know, I, I prefer speed. I know Jim Rutherford prefers speed, but I don't think Chase on if if Chase on is your one guy who's sort of a skater like that. I don't think it kills you. What what kills you within the team speed thing is having Chase on plus Pearson plus Kuzmenko. That's where it becomes a little bit dicey because those guys are all. I mean, none of those guys are burners, and if that's three of your eight wingers. That means that you're not a fast team. Uh, this is I never thought I would say this, at least not in the sense of having like interesting productive discussion. But the the six fifty six fifty Dunbar Lumber text line is alight with Alex Chase on <laughs> thoughts. I'm not surprised <laughs> by that right at all. Now. People are fired up to talk about Alex Chase on uh, this one. Wouldn't it be better to save the roster spot taken up by Chase on and give it to an AHL call up? That's from uh, that's from Rager. Another well, one who? who like Sheldon well, Drive. Well, that's the question here, and I just lost the text, but there was somebody else. Uh, who texted in saying that they would rather see uh, Will Lockwood play in that role. Really? But Alex Jason is just... Lockwood you're, didn't you're, have a point. The, the floor is so much higher for what you're going to get. And I, and I know, obviously, Lockwood has the speed element, and there's an element you want to dream of what he could be. But if you're just talking who's going to help you win games in November, December, etc., the floor is so much higher for Alex Chason right now. Yeah. I mean, the floor for Alex Chason... It might be higher than Will Lockwood's ceiling. Like, do you see Will Lockwood ever being a power play contributor? No, right? Will Lockwood's at .5 points per game in his career in the AHL. He had, what, 24 game, twenty four points in 46 games in the American League last year? If you put Chase on in the American League, he's a point-per-game player. Like, for sure, 100%. Right? I mean, materially, I know that fans want to dream on youth. Alex Chase on is better. It's not just his floor. Like, his floor might be higher than Will Lockwood's ceiling. And I have a lot of time for Will Lockwood as a character player who's overcome a lot and who gives it his all every shift, right? I mean, he has an extraordinary work rate, and it should be mentioned, although he didn't have a point in his, uh, was it 13 games with the Canucks? 13 or 14? Something like that. Although he didn't have a point, he did lead the team in hits, right? Like, he he played hard, he got in there, his forechecking was really good, but, you know, Lockwood... Lockwood's offensive ceiling just I mean there it isn't there like there's nothing in Lockwood's career track record that indicates that he even has the ceiling to be a top nine guy in the NHL you know he, he could be a hard-working fourth liner who if he becomes a really really good penalty killer can carve out a long niche in the NHL um, I know because of who he is as a, as a person that he's going to empty the tank to maximize his potential and you always want a guy like that in the organization but you do not, under any circumstances, need to carve out a roster spot for him. He needs to take that. He needs to absolutely take that, the way he takes pucks from um, you know, defenders breaking out. Well, And this text comes in. I think they need to leave that spot open for youth or other options that will help when the team is ready to compete. But here's the thing with Alex Chason. This is not like you're going out 
and you know doing something like the Louis Erickson deal where you've committed so much money and so many resources into this player that it becomes awkward to move them around the lineup or take no, them out. Ta- we're talking like max two years, 800K. Yeah, and if if Will Lockwood comes in and has an incredible summer and then shows you that he's better than Alex Chason, well, no problem. Then you put Will Lockwood in the lineup and you do what you have to do you with Alex yeah. Chason. It's not going to prevent you ultimately from playing someone, but it's insurance if some of those other internal options don't turn into anything, right? It, it, but it's not going to prevent you from putting a potentially better player in the lineup at any point. Well, and let me let me give you another example on the Will Lockwood thing. Like, Sheldon Dries, I thought, played really well for the Canucks in the 11 games that he played, and he was well over point per game in the American League. Um, Dries is a guy who I'm going to be watching closely at training camp. Like, he's a guy with his speed, with, with his work rate, with his ability. Like, he was really good running the bumper on the power play for the Canucks when he came up. Uh, he was a crucial part of the club you know, winning those five games in a row and sort of keeping the torch burning late into the season in terms of some hope in this market. And, you know, that's a guy to me, like if I was handicapping it, if I was handicapping it going into training camp, I, I would I would be, you know, giving dry something like plus 200, plus 200 to make the opening night lineup. And I'd probably be at something like plus 250 or plus 300 for Will Lockwood. But again... Because Lockwood's the prospect and has that sort of hope factor, I'm sure that our listeners would severely disagree. Uh, This text comes in. I feel like if they're going for a fourth-line specialist, they would rather have a speedster with penalty-killing ability. That's probably true. Uh, It's just a question of going out. It's just a question of going out and finding that guy. And and, you know, although one of the other guys that I noted in on the list was Phil DiGiuseppe, and I'm really curious to see how this plays out with Phil DiGiuseppe. You know, he had the injury issues that sort of cropped up at just the wrong time for him to end up playing games for the Canucks last season. But this was a guy who was a Rutherford draft pick. Don't forget that, right? There's a familiarity there between the Canucks president and the player. Uh, Availed himself well in Abbotsford. And if you're talking about a guy who could profile as a faster penalty-killing option, well, Phil DiGiuseppe might be the guy. Like, you kind of have that player already in-house to some extent, and I'll be curious to see. He feels to me like a candidate to sign a deal, sign a two-way deal at some point here with the Canucks. Uh, well, we're going to move on from Alex Chason now. Why? Uh, the <laughs> listeners are all over it. It's honestly like one of the kind of ground rules for for radio and sports radio is if you're getting the feedback, right, just yeah. keep going on that Let topic. I am honestly blown away by the amount of feedback we have got specifically on Alex can Chason. I, and Alex somebody fans? somebody hit us up on Twitter like, hey, is the entire show going to be about Alex Chason? And I don't know what to tell hey, you. It, w- it struck a nerve. We're Chase on the story. Oh, boy. <laughs> Listen, Canucks fans live in the weeds, right? They live in the weeds. There's no detail too small. For Canucks fans not to glom onto and want to hear more about. And that's what's great about this market. Right? It is. You, you can do hours and hours of good radio and have great debates on, you know, lines and cap space and all this other stuff. It's the best. It's the best. So, anyway, we will move on. Uh, I'll give the final word to Tim here because I think this is a good text. He texts in, Chase on is a better fit out of the press box to fill in for injury in a top nine role than either Lockwood or Dries. Doesn't make him an everyday player, but the other players need to beat him out. I think that's an interesting way yeah. of summing well, it up for Tim there. And sums it up really well because your first, your first, like, what is, what is the first characteristic of a great fourth liner? I would say move up the lineup. That he's also an average third liner. Yeah. Right? Like, right. that's the first order of business. 
because you need to be ready when injuries occur, especially in this league. Uh, all right, well, <laughs> I was expecting to go through to spend the first segment like going through bullet point quickly on a lot <laughs> of the internal UFAs. No, but he's the one. He's the one that's the most interesting, and it captures a lot about the team building philosophy and where they stand, and you know the youth versus veteran. There's a lot. To build off of the Alex Chase on conversation. Can we conversation. just kick around Jack Rathbone before Let's we go to Let's do it. Let's talk about Jack Rathbone. I think we got to talk about Jack Rathbone really quickly because the Rathbone situation for me, and it dovetails nicely in my view with the Brad Hunt situation, are two of the most interesting decisions facing the club. Now, obviously, Jack Rathbone gets qualified, right? He's 10.2C. He's not subject to an offer sheet, so he doesn't actually have the rights, his, his free agent rights. In fact, his inclusion in my free agent list is wrong he is not a free agent he has no right to free agency this summer but he is an rfa so i'm I'm gonna detail him that way is 10.2c the canucks have hughes ekman larson dermot on the left side kyle burrows can play the left side credibly luke shen did it occasionally last season i much prefer him on the right side but but kyle burrows i thought adjusted pretty well and showed that he can legitimately be an option to be your fourth left side guy the Canucks, they, I, I will point out also another guy who's on the UFA list is Brad Hunt, and it wouldn't shock me at all to see him return to the organization, well, right? him and Bruce Boudreaux are very tight. Yeah. And Brad Hunt is really good. Like, Brad Hunt is a really good offensive defenseman for your third pair. And he's, and he's good enough defensively that he's a net positive, five on five, right? He's not, no, one, no one's confusing Brad Hunt with a stopper, a defensive stopper, but he's solid enough that his legitimate skill driving offense and you know, helping contribute to the breakout makes him a net positive in a third pair role, an everyday third pair role. Like that's Brad Hunt is an NHL player, period. And there's a high level of trust between him and Bruce Boudreaux. So you know that he's going to stick in the lineup. You know that Boudreaux's going to give him every shot. Not to mention the fact that Brad Hunt can play right side, left side, up front. He's like the perfect utility guy. Who was that Blue Jays utility guy that people loved forever? Was it Marco Scudero, or are we going back farther no, than that? Further back. McDonald? Uh, well, McDonald was, wasn't really a utility guy. He was just an ace defensive shortstop. Right, okay. But he played uh, all over the lineup sometimes, no? Uh, if you were having him in the lineup, you wanted his glove at shortstop. Okay. Anyways! <laughs> ah, bad. With regards, to, <laughs> with regards to the sort of decision here, you you come back to some sort of a similar conversation we just had with Chase on and and Lock, Lock, Lockwood, excuse me, which is do you have a do you, does the organization decide that they feel a need to carve out a direct path for Rathbone to be on the twenty three man roster next season, or are they comfortable loading up on depth defenders who play the left side and forcing Rathbone to force their hand and win a job out of camp? For me, this is a really tough decision. Usually, I'm, I'm, I'm on team let the guy earn his way on. Usually, that's my view. But Rathbone's 23, right? If he's going to ever have top four upside in the NHL, which I think he does still, but he's got a lot of work to do defensively. It has to happen now. Players don't marinate until they're 24, 25, and then break out into the NHL, especially when they're defensemen. Like, you're kind of in the league by 22, 23, Almost always, sometimes earlier, as much as people like to use the 200 games, you have to play 200 games. Like, that's, first of all, a lie. You can tell right away when a defenseman has it or not. Right away. And Rathbone needs a chance to show you that. This is kind of, 
Like, the clock is really ticking for him. Like, 60 minutes ticking. If he's going to be an NHL player, an everyday NHL player for this franchise, and I think he's got the wheels and the offensive instincts that he'll carve out along, uh, you know, a significant NHL niche at some point here. Uh, might might just be as a third pair guy. Might be as a Brad Hunt type. But I do think that'll happen for him. But if he's going to do it here, if he's going to be a player who has any top four upside, it needs to happen now. And I think keeping a relatively clear path for him to do that, considering how short you are on time, you know, that would have to be tempting for me if I was the organization. Rathbone is interesting to me because he bridges the gap between the two conversations that we kind of wanted to have on the show today. One about how to approach their internal free agents. And then the other one that w- that I want to talk about, we'll get into it more on the second segment, is just the idea of internal development. And where is it reasonable to expect internal development from what you already have on the roster in the organization? Where does it need to happen most? With Jack Rathbone, this is just such a big summer for him, right? Because as you said, there might not necessarily be a clear path to him starting the season with the NHL team, right? It might be a situation where he has to beat out some some much more established players who have already earned the trust of the coaching staff in order to do that. And not just for what he can mean for the Canucks, but for his career even, I think this is just a massive summer in terms of his development to be able to come in and lay claim permanently to that NHL spot. By the way, we we had lots of uh, suggestions or a couple of suggestions anyway, come in about who that uh, utility Jays player was. Somebody suggested it might've been Ryan Goins who played all over the, uh, all over the diamond. (laughs) I, I never had any. Days. I never had any time for Ryan going. All right. Well, we'll, we'll continue to think about that one. Uh, we're good. We'll get into a little bit more on the free agency side as well because yeah, we talked a lot about Alex Chason, but there's some interesting questions that came in six fifty six fifty to the Dunbar Lumber text line that I wanted to address as well. And we'll also talk about the internal development thing and thing and what that could mean for the Canucks over the summer. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, and how could you not with a first segment like that, uh, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. And again, if you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and review. More Canucks talk on the way. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Security here is pretty tight. And now Pat's ready for the left circle in front. Tip play, Mercer, so is stopped. Welcome back to the show. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drantz. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. We kind of uh, inadvertently set off... uh, a fantastic Alex Chase on discussion and debate in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line in the first segment, Drancer. And uh, again, we were planning to get to a few more of the interesting free agents the Canucks have in-house. I wanted to just address a couple of questions that came in during that segment about some of those free agents. First one, unsigned, is Mikey DiPietro done in Vancouver? We'll see where this goes, but the fact is is that Spencer Martin passed him on the depth chart as evidenced by the fact that the Canucks prioritized signing him to a two-year one-way contract. There's no doubt that Martin is going to be barring something tremendously unexpected. This team's full-time NHL backup next year. Additionally, in terms of the goalie of the future power rankings... We've heard a lot of glowing praise for Arturs Silovs over mm-hmm. the course of the past six months. 
How much of that have we heard directed DiPietro's way? I don't think you have to read between the lines here to get a sense of where this goes. Meanwhile, you know, the Canucks need a third goaltender who can play 10 games should they need it. They needed it last season. Spencer Martin won what? (laughs) Almost all of them? Everyone he played? There's a big reason why the Canucks ended up at 92 and not 85 points, and it was the play of Spencer Martin. Like, honestly, huge swing for them in terms of being a 92-point team versus, you know, further back. Spencer Martin's play elevated this team in in a significant way. And you need to design that level of insurance into your goalie structure in the contemporary NHL. You need to manage starters' minutes more closely than ever. You need to have a backup who, who, you know, is going to give you sturdy play over 20 games. And you need an insurance policy. And based on their usage of DiPietro last season, is he that guy? Is he that guy? And where's the relationship at after the club mangled, let's be honest, mangled his development for budgetary reasons during the pandemic? It's a really complicated scenario, but it's certainly a player or a situation that I'm watching closely as we get into transaction season over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it certainly it, it wouldn't be a shock to see it go that way. Like I understand why the texter is, you know, putting the puzzle pieces together and, and bringing it up to us. You, as you said, you just lay out all it's, of the it's things one that of have those happened. Four piece children's puzzles. <laughs> you don't need to, you know, this isn't like a five hours during the March twenty twenty lockdown that you're gonna spend pouring over a puzzle. This is a four piece puzzle for for children. Um, in my view anyway. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. And I mentioned it just uh, before we went to break there at the end of the first segment. You know, I was just thinking, and we talked about, uh, we, we played a clip from the Zadine presser yesterday. It was Henrik talking about just the importance of patience. And we kind of spun that into a conversation about the role of patience in the Canucks offseason. And I was just thinking about, we won't play the clip here, but I was just thinking about some of the other things the Zadines had to say. And one of the topics that came up repeatedly was how important the summers they had early in their NHL career were for them, right? To put in all of the work in the gym, to get better at skating, to just work on their game in general, how important those off-ice months, obviously there's on-ice training involved, but what I mean is away from the actual NHL schedule, how important those months were for them continuing to improve and eventually becoming the players that will end up in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I started to think about just the idea of internal improvement as it relates to this vintage of the Canucks. And I think, you know, the whole idea of internal improvement, I think sometimes teams end up relying on it way too much, right? Like you can run into this mentality where, hey, we've got four really exciting prospects and now we'll just kick back and let them get better each year and, you know, sign some veterans to plug in around them. And there you go. We'll have a great team. And, and if you're thinking about it like that, you're, you're going about it the wrong way. So it can be easy to scoff at, but it's also the kind of thing which I think is vitally important to make sure that you are getting that internal improvement every year from the players you already have in-house. And just look at how the Canucks have invested in their player development department recently. They've obviously made it a really, really big priority, even though you know a lot of that's going to be at the AHL level, but it's important at the NHL level as well. And I just wanted to, to put this out there to you, Drancer, and to the listeners where are those areas? And maybe it's just a specific player or a specific skill from a specific player. But when you look at, you know, some of the young players, whether they're NHL established, pushing to get to the NHL, whatever it is, where are the areas that you look at and think, man, this guy really needs to take a step or this guy really needs to add that skill to his game? I mean, first off, it's the top end. It's, it's Demko, it's Hughes, it's Patterson. 
right? That, for me, that's where it starts. And I've been thinking about this a lot this week because of Luongo and the Twins both going into the hall at the same time. And the way that those gentlemen all worked, right? The way that those gentlemen all took losing personally, the way they put it on their shoulders game after game, and the way they stood in there game after game, right? The community side, the media side. The way they embraced being faces of the franchise. Not always easy, right? Mwango didn't do it with the same grace that the Twins did. No one ever has. Like, it's not a fair comparison for Luongo. But it's not always easy. But you can't say that Luongo didn't take the shots that were fired at him, right? Like, he was available. He was, I mean, he was available right after the trade deadline when he got pulled off the ice and then not dealt. Uh, He was emotional. It was raw. But he did it. Always, always. He understood that he was the face of the franchise and he carried himself accordingly. And for me, there's been a lot of talk about culture, right? There's been a lot of talk about practice habits, preparation around this group. At the end of the day, a coach can't hold a a contemporary NHL team accountable. People won't tell you this. Like, coaches will never admit to this because, you know, it undermines the confidence that the public has on them. GMs will never admit it either. It has to come from within the room. It has to be something that players grow into doing themselves. And it is something that can be learned, by the way, right? It's not something that you necessarily have at 24, 23, 26. So I'm not being critical of Demko or or Pedersen or Hughes here. I want to make that clear. But it's something that has to happen for a team to take a step. And and I want to give you a a classic Drance example, which means I'm going to cite the Florida Panthers. (laughs) When I was down there, I don't know that Barkov, Ekblad, and Huberto had it either. Not not on a day-to-day basis, anyway. When things sort of went sideways outside of them, outside of the team, you think about that entire 2016-15 season, or 17 season as an, ex- as an example, it affected the team materially. This year, five, you know, five years on, they have the Quenville situation unfolding, right? There's all sorts of noise Outside of that team. Well, they put together a historic season, won the President's Trophy. There was no game that they were out of. The The level of competition that they brought to the ice every season through all untold challenges was immense. They matured. They figured out how to win as a group. They figured out what that took. And they had some help along the way, right? Like Patrick Hornfist coming into that locker room, I wasn't there for that. But from what I've been told, was a game changer in terms of elevating some of the cultural stuff around that team. I think the Anton Strawman signing, like Strawman didn't work out as a player for them, but Strawman coming into that room apparently was also a huge deal. A huge deal. It can be learned. It can be taught. It can be passed along. The Twins themselves will tell you that Matt Sundin coming in and Pavel Dimitra coming in was a huge moment for teaching that group what it took to be at that level for a long time. And... For me, that's sort of step one. This team's going nowhere. Nowhere. If Quinn Hughes is not a top five defenseman, if Elias Pettersson's not a top five centerman, and if Thatcher Demko's not a top, top five goaltender. Of those three statements, I'd say Demko has sort of hit that level at this point. Yeah, he's if he's not there, he's extraordinarily close. And, and, right. and, and Hughes is not far off either, but Pettersson certainly has, has a ways to go. Like He needs to sustain what he did in the second half of the season for the next two years before we start talking about him in those terms. Um, there's a ways to go here. And it's and so for me, that's sort of number one. Like, number one is 
this team's best players, best young players, need to prove that they can be the core group, the best players on the next great Canucks team. Because if they're not, right, if if Pedersen's more Kadri than Matthews, if Hughes is more Morgan Riley than Kale McCarr, right, and, and if Thatcher Demko's more, um, I'm trying to, you know, more Jonathan Quick than Igor Shosturkin, well, you can probably still win with that. Because <laughs> it's goalies, they're different. But, you know, those guys need to be pretty close to the apex of their powers for this team to do anything. Otherwise, the steps that you need to take to get this club to where it needs to go are more dramatic and are well outside the scope of anything this ownership group has ever considered in terms of tearing it down. And it's it's interesting to, when you start talking about internal improvement, it's interesting to focus on those three players. Because on the one hand... They're your best guys. They're you three of the best guys. You don't worry about them. Now, I think if you... You still look at those three, and there's kind of gradations of how much on-ice improvement there still needs to be. Like Thatcher Demko, if Thatcher Demko gives you that year over and over and over again, you are thrilled. You are fantastically happy. Same with Quinn Hughes. Quinn Hughes, I pretty much agree. You know, okay, hey, got stronger, yada, 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 get a little sharper in the defensive end. Sure, but Quinn Hughes was basically at the level he needed to be. Like, if that's his his plateau, you're still really, really happy. His defensive play was really good, too. Like, the, the strength thing, that's coming. That's coming. The other thing I'd add with with Quinn is, you know, year after year now, he's shown that he's going to target the areas that he's weak at and improve them. And so as he adds that mid-20s strength that happens to everybody, maybe eventually... Becomes, as a natural process. Maybe yeah. eventually he becomes a dad and adds the dad strength, too, which is <laughs> which is good. You know, the, the strength you get from just carrying around, you know, you know, carrying around uh-huh. car seats and stuff. Um. And then you've got, and then you've got Pedersen, who you know, Pedersen has been at an elite level. Like the nineteen twenty season, Pedersen was a top five player in the NHL in terms of his overall value, right? Then he got hurt through that twenty twenty one campaign, and and it wasn't good. And then the first half of this season was tough to watch. I never lost my faith, right? Like every all of our listeners know, I'm not being critical of these players because I'm never critical of these players. I'm the guy who's like they're fine, even when the rest of the market's carving them. But there is another level that I want to see them get to. And it actually has less to do with on-ice performance than it has to do with representing this franchise and and figuring out what it takes to win as a group. That's sort of the thing. Like, I don't question the on-ice skill of any of these guys. The only thing with Pedersen from an on-ice perspective is do what you did in the second half last year for a full 82 games. Right, that's sure. the improvement that needs to happen for sure, or or at least or at least do your nineteen twenty really close. Like yeah. he he needs to be at least as good defensively for like even even at his best last season, the second half of last season, the two way impact wasn't quite there the same way that it was in nineteen twenty twenty nineteen twenty. So I know that he can do it. I've seen him do it, and you know I want to see I want to see that on a more regular basis. Like I want to see him be a matchup guy. I want to see him, you know. The, the adding the penalty kill wrinkle, for example, like that's huge. That's huge. If Pedersen can be a really good sort of uh, PP, PK2 torpedo, right, who just disrupts everything in the neutral zone and plays aggressively, that's a huge value add for him. But, you know, at some point, he's got to bring that anticipation, that one-shot scoring ability to being a high-end matchup guy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of work there to be done, in my view. Like, there's a lot of work there to be done. But, but again, it's it's independent. It's about, you know, understanding 
that the team wins and loses because of you first, right? It's about the availability in terms of the media side. It's about how you represent this franchise every day. And that's where, you know, I, I want to see more from, from that sort of young core group, right? And like JT, JT Miller, just as a quick example. JT Miller takes some shots every now and then because of his fiery personality or the giveaways or, you know, because we could hear him swearing throughout the 2021 season. But after big losses, how often do you see Miller? A lot. Like, Miller's always... And what does he have to say? It's raw, it's honest, it's, you know, it's he's, he's out there taking that accountability. He carries himself that way. Horvat carries himself that way. But I want to see more of it from the club's best young player. This is an interesting question from Susan in North Van, who says, Hey, Drance and Jamie, are JT Miller being with the Canucks and Elias Pettersson becoming the best version of himself mutually exclusive? And it's interesting just because, you know, there's two guys you pointed out who have taken on a lot of that role, right? JT Miller and Bo Horvat. If both of them are still here, does that complicate the process of Elias Patterson and Quinn Hughes and Thatcher Demko stepping up to be those guys instead, right? Stepping up to carry that weight on their shoulders. Well, I talked about how it could be learned, right? Like I talked about how it could be learned, how it could be taught. Um, for me, you know, part of the obligation of the of the veteran players is to bring young guys along the right way, right? So, it, you know, it's, it's a complicated one because if JT Miller's not your Matt Sundin in terms of earning that respect and, and changing the way that guys view their responsibilities to the team, well, that's sort of a bigger problem, a bigger quandary for the club to, uh, to unpack. Uh, definitely odd that we never saw Pedersen and Hughes play together. Miller, uh, Pedersen after, and Miller. Pedersen and Miller play together after the, sort of the first couple months of the season. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's mutually exclusive that Pedersen's not going to become the best version of himself with, with number nine on the team. I don't. I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, you know, you think about. I, I certainly don't think it's impossible, right? Like, is no. it a complicating factor, perhaps? Well, maybe, but it's not. It, it shouldn't be. Oh, it's a complete roadblock to it ever happening. What I will say. What I will say is this: like, there's an extent to which I do believe that Pedersen needs to be empowered to be the guy on this team in in a material way, because I think you need to challenge him to do some of the things I'm talking about to set the standard. Right. And, you know, is it possible to do that with a, a, a personality as large as JT Miller in the locker room? I think it is, but I think you have to be thoughtful about it and careful about it. And that's one of the challenges that the team's facing one way or the other, regardless of what happens with Miller. It's about finding ways to challenge Pedersen to take sort of rise to the occasion, take this team by the reins and really process and understand that he's the standard bearer for this franchise. That's the step I want to see from him. Far more far more important to me than anything he does on the ice. I'll just use this uh, opportunity again to quickly plug my Malkin to the Canucks hobby horse. <laughs> and I know that Malkin's agent was on uh, with Donnie and Dolly Described today. Described it as a 50-50. Saying 50-50. I know uh, Brian Burke was on with Jeff Merrick. Didn't necessarily get, uh, that was yesterday, didn't necessarily get, uh, oh, it's going to be done, don't worry vibes from that. So well, I'll look. just put it out there. This is this is so the Fenway Group, right? The John Henry Group purchased the Penguins. Uh, that sale was approved the day that Rutherford was hired in Vancouver, right? And think about what you know about Liverpool and the Boston Red Sox, which are the two other teams they operate. Do they sign 
older nope. players to big deals, or do they trade Mookie Betts? Yeah, do they let are they gonna, Sadio Mane walk? Are they going to keep Xander Bogarts? Have they reached an agreement with Mo Salah? I mean, just just look at this organization's track record. There's two things about the Fenway group that need to be remembered. One, they're really good. They know how to win. Number two, they don't commit big money to older players. They don't commit big money in term to older players. They just don't. Like, like just, I mean, look at that James Milner deal that Liverpool signed, where he, one year deal, he takes a big pay cut. There were other teams in the EP. You want to be part of our team? This is what it's going to take. Look at Zan- the Xander Bogart standoff that's sort of developing in Boston right now. You know, like these, this group, this new ownership group, they're going to take a different approach. It's probably going to challenge our preconceptions of, of what hockey teams do. And I'd bet that they take a ton of bullets this season, particularly if they play hardball the way that they customarily do with, you know, beloved franchise fixtures like Latang and Malkin and end up losing one or, or both. But at some point, you know, it's hard to argue with the success that they've had across multiple super competitive sports. And, you know, it's, it's there's no rhyme or reason to taking that approach with a with a player like Malkin at this moment in time in the Penguins' development, particularly considering that I don't think they've won a playoff run since they won their second round since they won their second cup. Like, since 2016. It's been a while. Right? It's not like this team's going deep every year. No. They're, they're a really good team. You know, uh, for me, last year, they were certainly better than New York. But... You know, they're not an elite team anymore. They're not going deep in the playoffs. And I, I, I find it hard to get too worked up over an organization's reluctance to sign a 35-year-old guy to a big money deal at this stage in that team's development. I think that letting Malkin go, as painful as it would be, it could be the, it could end up being the right call for Pittsburgh. But I don't think that means it would be the wrong call for another team to sign him. No, right? no, like, definitely He could not. still provide incredible utility to a lot of other teams in the NHL, and I think specifically Vancouver, if a bunch of other dominoes fall in the right way in terms of cap space for as sure. well. Well, and, and the, the key part here would be that Malkin's term would be lower yeah. than, you know, and yeah, he's 35. Like, that's... He's 35, a, he's battled injuries. It's true. Like, there's no way around that. That's, that's as, as recently as last year. You got to factor that in. But Jamie, yeah, Jamie, it's funny you say that, though, because I had this fever dream that the Canucks signed Malkin to a super cheap deal, and he ended up being sort of like the Sundin to the Sedins and sort of ushering in this new era with uh, Kuzmenko and, I'm and Pod Colson. He, yeah. He's sort of their Sundin in a way, and how great Sundin was for the Twins for that, I guess, half season or yeah, half one season. third of a season or whatever it was. So I, I, I know Malkin, obviously, is going to ask for a lot, probably not doable for the Canucks, but is there some world where they make that work even for one year and Malkin rubs off on these guys? I, I've... That's 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 it, man. Like you're speaking my language. If, like, you, if you're trying to change the culture of this room, there's no, there's nobody who's plausibly available who checks all of the boxes that Malkin yeah. does and has the weight and the reputation that M- Malkin maybe, does. Maybe maybe Palat, but that's it. There's Realistically, though, it's not cheap, though, right? I mean, he's probably going to ask for a lot. Oh yeah, you I'd would, say, you would I'd assume say seven seven and a half times three minimum. Yeah, I mean, it's Malkin. Yeah, it might be. It might ultimately just be too rich. I think my and what I've said. I've said this before in the show is, look. If there's if there's a possibility it works out, you got to at least do the due diligence. Okay, well, Just go down the road and see. Well, here's here's the big question then: Miller on the Zabanajad deal, eight times seven, eight times eight five, or Malkin at three times seven five. I honestly, so you're trading Miller, and you're not letting him walk in UFA, right? Yeah, uh, I, correct. Right, so you're so trade. You're getting futures. 
I think I'd do that route in Malkin. You get the shorter term commitment. You get to do, you bring in a player who plausibly is going to help with what we spent this segment talking about, right? Building your next generation of great players into true faces of the franchise type guys. And you get the futures and you get the lesser salary and term commitment. And regardless of age and injury, he's still really, really good. Yeah, he's really still good. Gino Malkin. Like, he might even give you only half a season, but that half season will be really good. But if you you're, it's if it's half a season at, uh, at 7.5 7. times 5. 3, yeah. you don't <laughs> love that? that? Don't love that at all. You don't no. love that? Especially because it's the 35-plus contract, right? So it can't be bought out. But that's the risk, right? Because he's, he's injury-prone. Uh, there, there's a lot of risk. There, he's, th- he's 35 and he's injury-prone. But he is an exceptional talent. Yeah. Uh, uh, a, a tough balance for the Canucks to consider, and of course, uh, there'd be familiarity there with Jim Rutherford as well. A little bit can't be uh, can't be ignored there. Um, hey, we ended the show. We we ha- we started the show with Alex Chase on. Yes, like the least sexy possible radio topic, <laughs> and built up to and built up to <laughs> would you Malkin. rather Malkin or Miller? Good job by us. Good job. We Good completely job, we inverted the uh, yeah. <laughs> the traditional the, sports radio the, structure. The, the Canucks Hour. We took you for a ride today. Oh boy! <laughs> the Canucks Hour brought to you by Alex Chason. Uh, that is going to do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow. The People Show. Bick Nazar, Randy Janda is up next on the home of the Canucks Sportsnet six fifty.